Let's pray together. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. We say it with a choir. We thank you. If we had a thousand tongues, we could not thank you enough. We have more than a thousand reasons to give praise to you. We thank you. We thank you. But one more reason, Father, just in case we might have forgotten. Let that reason be clear as we study Holy Scripture together in the name of Jesus Christ. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Did you track the exploits of Ivan the Terrible this week? Hmm? Hurricane Ivan. One of the most powerfully devastating Category 5 storms to ever pummel the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast of the southern United States. Winds clocked over 185 miles an hour. Hurricane Ivan, which, by the way, followed Hurricane Charlie and Hurricane Francis. And now, in case you haven't heard, is being followed by Hurricane Jean. One thing is for certain, life in Florida can no longer be called dull. As Loretta Reminded us just a moment ago in the praise segment. Brian Sterling, Bruce Sterling rather, in Wired Magazine. And I get little editions uh, of this e-magazine from our webmaster Janine Lim on occasion. He wrote a piece in uh, Wired.com descri- describing the no longer dull kind of living thanks to technology. Let me share his words. These are the words of Bruce Sterling. The rate of technological change is dizzying and it's only getting faster. We may be on the verge of an astounding breakthrough or with equal likelihood, we may be at the edge of a new dark age of plagues, mass hunger and climate destabilization. More likely yet, we live in a dull, self-satisfied, squalid, eddy in history, blundering around with no concept of progress and no sense of direction. Sound like your life at all? Blundering around with no sense of progress and no concept of direction. He goes on, we have no idea what we really want from our own lives and from society. So what do you want? What do you want from your life? Huh? What do you want? Do you know? Now, here comes his punchline. This is why, this is what caught my eye. And no Moore's Law rising majestically on any 2D graph is ever going to make us magnificent or spiritual when we lack the will, vision, and appetite for spiritual magnificence. End quote. Isn't that good? Nothing, nothing in life will ever make us magnificent or spiritual when we lack the will, vision, and appetite. For spiritual magnificence, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. An appetite for spiritual magnificence. The magnificence of righteousness, by the way, which is precisely the nature of our quest together. And so pull your Bible out again, please. Open it to the book of Romans. This book that is The summation of spiritual magnificence in Holy Scripture. We go back to the book of Romans. This book that will be our our grist for the journey all this year. Romans chapter 1. Go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 1. 
I'll be in the New International Version. Whatever Bible you have, that's great. Get ready to mark your Bible up. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. You say, wait a minute, Dwight, it doesn't say slave. Ah, you weren't here. You're probably part of the freshman. We missed the freshman. We missed you last week when you were on retreat. But it actually reads, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. By the way, if you weren't here last week, you got to download that uh, teaching onto your MP3 player. I'll give you that website in just a moment. You can download it and you can listen to it at your leisure. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and servant, and set apart for the gospel of God. Then drop down to verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just been introduced to the R word, the one word that is the radical secret to a life of spiritual magnificence. In fact, you've got to write it down. Write it down. You know the drill. Pull out your uh, new study guide that is in your worship bulletin today. If you came in and you didn't happen to get a study guide and bulletin, our ushers are going to put one in your hands right now. Just hold your hand up and the ushers will be there. And while they're doing that, I want to say to those of you watching on uh, television, if you'll go to our website www, see it on the screen now, www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto our new teaching series called Wine and Milk for short, Wine and Milk. This would be part three and the title of this one, No Shame at All. You click on there and you'll get the study guide just like that and you can be a part of our journey. Just hold your hand up. The uh, ushers are coming your way. Some dynamite quotations here that I hope you'll keep and... Uh, Integrate into your own personal study. All right, write it down, please. In fact, I want you to get the Bruce Sterling quote. Let's get the Bruce Sterling quote. Nothing is ever going to make us magnificent or spiritual when we lack the will, vision, and appetite for spiritual magnificence. Write that in, please. Spiritual magnificence. Hallelujah. Well, the R word of spiritual magnificence, write it in. The R word is righteousness. Write in the R word. Righteousness. Righteousness, magnificence. How magnificent? Let's check it out for the few moments you and I are together today. In fact, can we read it again? Romans 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. These two verses are the theme of the entire book of Romans. In fact, jot this down. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the heart and soul of this book. The entire book is an exposition of these two verses. And in fact, the theme text for these two verses, jot this down as well, is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And how does it read? The righteous will live by faith. Fill it in, please. Both Habakkuk and Paul are championing, jot it down, they are championing the great theme of righteousness by faith. There was a generation previous to this where that used to be kind of the, the buzz phrase. 
of our community of faith. But we have a new generation now. Nobody talks about righteousness by faith anymore. Hence, our revisiting this spiritual magnificence of Romans. And by the way, let's not start talking about righteousness by faith. We're way ahead of ourselves because what's the point of considering righteousness by faith if we're not sure about righteousness, the R word? And so spend a moment with me and let's see if we can grapple, wrap our minds around the R word. There are ten. Let me share them with you. Rapid fire sequence. Ten verses straight out of your Bible. I'm not even going to have you look the verses up. Forget it. Too much time to look them up. The verses are right here. You'll have to fill in a blank or two, but would you mind sometime this afternoon, sometime this next week, in your own private worship, go to your study Bible and with that marking pen, go back to these verses and mark the verses. Anybody who tells you a Bible's not supposed to be marked in has not been to college. You've got to mark a book if you want to remember what's in the book. Don't be embarrassed. Mark it in all the colors you wish. The Bible only belongs, that particular one, to you. Do not mark the one in the pew. That Bible that you own belongs to you. Mark it up. Go back and study these. Let me share them with you now. The R word. By the way, these are just ten. If you get your concordance out, you will discover that there are 300 times that the word righteousness is used and another 308 times that righteous is used. So if you just wanted to track it, you'd have a lifelong study right there. But I'm going to give you 10. Number one, jot it down, please. Isaiah 45:24. in the Lord alone. In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. Oh, there must be a synonym to righteousness. We want to find out what the R word really means. In the Lord alone. Only God has it. You say, hey, wait a minute, Dwight. Don't, don't, don't I have some righteousness? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yes, you do. Jot this text down. We didn't get it in the study guide. Jot it down. I'll put it on the screen for you. Isaiah 64, verse 6. You do have some righteousness. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. I'm not going to tell you what the Hebrew word there for filthy rags means, because if I did, it would embarrass one half of this worshiping audience. Not a very pleasant picture of the righteousness you do have. Just a filthy rag, which is a euphemism. All right. So only you, God, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. Okay, number two, Jeremiah 12, 1. You are always, you are always, always, always righteous, O Lord. Number three, Psalm 71, verse 5. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation. Oh, there's a synonym. Of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I came across this a few weeks ago in my private worship and I said, oh God, right on. That is the truth about righteousness because there is no way I can wrap my mind around this, this, this R word. What is it? But even if we can't understand it, we can tell of it. Huh? My mouth will tell of your righteousness, though I know not its measure. Okay, number four, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He is never unrighteous. He is righteous in all his ways. Oh, and I love this. And loving, loving. So it's a synonym with love, loving toward all he has made. Number five, Isaiah 24, 16. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. The whole universe is singing about this R word, talking about spiritual magnificence. Number six, whoa, one of the greatest prayers. One of the greatest prayers, number six, one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture, Daniel chapter 9, verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day, oh God, we are covered with shame. 
You want to talk about our righteousness? That's it. It's shame. The best we can come up with is a filthy rag of shame. Number seven, Exodus nine twenty-seven. I don't normally quote a pagan king in worship, but today Pharaoh is right on. And Pharaoh says to Moses, oh, mercy, mercy, the Lord is in the right. You see, the old King James has it right. The Lord is righteous. But the newer translations, they didn't want to, they, they didn't want, oh, you can't have a pagan saying God is righteous. But he did. The Lord is in the right. And we, I and my people, are in the wrong. King James says we are wicked. Zephaniah 3, verse 5, the Lord within her, speaking of the community of faith, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Hallelujah. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his, here's another synonym, justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Oh, I like that. When I was a kid growing up, we didn't have praise music like you have today. We had an old chorus That went, Jesus never fails, Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Hallelujah. The spiritual magnificence. What number? Number nine coming up. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. That's the very bedrock of God's government. And finally, number 10, Isaiah 5, 16. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. So what is the meaning of this R word that's a secret to radical spiritual magnificence? What is the meaning of it? Emil Bruner, one of the great theologians of the previous century, Here's his definition. Fill it in, please. He writes, righteousness, therefore, is simply the holiness of God as it is expressed toward his created world or toward anything apart from himself. And then written decades before that brilliant theologian wrote it, a little book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing defines it similarly. Righteousness, fill it in, is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love. Fill it in. Righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the R word in its very quintessence is Almighty God Himself. Write that in. It's God. You want the you want spiritual magnificence? You want the R word? We're talking about God himself. For in the Lord alone is righteousness. Then why did Martin Luther have such a protracted and difficult time coming to grip with this short little phrase he found in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God as a monk? Young Martin would agonize before his confessor, desperately trying to flush out a forgotten sin or a hidden fault. Roland Bainton, in his wonderful biography of Luther entitled Here I Stand, and I've read it two, three, four times. Marvelous biography. Bainton describes how Martin, I'm quoting now, confessed frequently, often daily, and for as long as six hours on a single occasion. Six hours trying to find sin in his life, ransacking his memory and probing his motives. Sometimes, get this, Luther would repeat a confession and to be sure of including everything, he would review his entire life until the confessor grew weary and exclaimed, man, you are not, you, you, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. 
Don't you know God commands you hope? But Luther was paralyzed with this concept of the righteousness of God, convinced that there was some standard he could never, ever achieve and he'd never get saved in the end. And by the way, even after Luther became a professor of sacred theology and he's lecturing in the University of Wittenberg, he is still struggling. Now, these are his words on the screen. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice or righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage or satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I, I love this, yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a yearning to know what he meant. End quote. I wonder, do you suppose... In our third millennial sort of way, we are struggling the same way that Martin Luther struggled. Hmm? I want to tell you about a book, a little book, but a powerful book. Let me put the title. There's a sermon in the title. This book is written by Jeff Van Vonderen. The title of his book, Tired of Trying to Measure Up, Getting Free from the Demands, Expectations, and Intimidations of Well-Meaning People, huh? Whoa. In the book, Jeff describes marriages and families and churches and schools and even pastoral staffs that are shame based systems. These are systems where everyone is shamed into conformity and compliance. And when I find out that you do not share my convictions, you do not share my behavioral standard, shame on you, get out of here, will not use you. Mm. Write this down. Shame-based systems are based upon performance. Now listen, this is Van Vonderen writing. We all need an environment where we feel our needs are met because of who we are and not because of what we do. In shame-based relationships, value and acceptance are earned on the basis of performance. Performance, however, always seems to fall short of the standard, giving us the message, you are defective and inadequate. Eventually, we become ingrained with a need to measure up. What follows is more impotent performance, which generates even more shame, and on it goes. Sound familiar? How about in a church in the third millennium? Listen to him. We've often taught that acceptability, acceptability comes from useful religious performance that lives up to the expectations of our particular religious community. And since human performance is inadequate, false means, a false means to acquire value, it always falls short. Someone is always displeased. And even if he isn't dissatisfied, we are. We simply can't act Perfect enough. Poor, poor Martin Luther. Poor you. Poor me. Maybe we're wrong about the righteousness of God. Maybe it is not about a standard to defend or a God to satisfy. 
I mean, it is clear Paul is not into any shame based system. I am not ashamed. He writes. Read it again. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Question, why does Paul refuse to live in a shame-based system? Answer, because of the gospel, which in the Greek, by the way, is translated, can be translated because of the good news. Question, the good news of what? Answer, the good news of the dynamite. And that's the word, dunamis, the dynamite power of God. Question, the power of God for what? Answer, the power of God to save everyone who believes. Question, believes what? Answer, the gospel. Which gospel? Romans 1. Romans 1, read it. Begin at the top, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Verse two, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse three, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Finally, verse five, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace. That's the gospel. Grace that comes to sinners all because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the eternal Son of God. You say, what kind of sinners? Hey, I want to tell you something. Did you know that our opening hymn today actually has 17 stanzas to it? Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. You can be thankful that the Adventist hymnal only included six. But our minister of music, he... he he sniffed this one out and found it. Seventeen stanzas. And I want to read to you, speaking, speaking of sinners, I want to read to you two of the stanzas that got left out. You remember the hymn? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. All right, it goes like this. Harlots and publicans and thieves in holy triumph join. Saved is a sinner that believes from crimes as great as mine. Good thing they left that one out. But here's, here's the second one. Murderers and all ye hellish crew, ye sons of lust and pride. Get it out. Get that, get that out of our hymnal, please. Please. We're not that bad of a sinner in here. Harlots, murderers, hellish crew, ye of lust, sons of lust. Please. This is church. That's the gospel for sinners just like you and me. That's the gospel. That's what... Paul is writing about, I am not ashamed. No shame based, no performance driven system in Paul's Christianity for the righteous will live by faith. They, they won't be shamed into knowing God. They won't be performed into understanding God. And by the way, when the light finally dawned on the troubled conscience of Martin Luther, it just blew open the doors of his soul heavenward. These are his words on the screen. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice or righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Is this in your study guide? Underline the next sentence then. This is it. Then I grasped. Talking about spiritual magnificence. Then I grasped. That the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies, God saves us through faith. 
Whoa. There, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When the paradigm shifted and Luther realized that the righteousness of God is not about his, his being a stern and angry judge and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you one day, but it's rather his, his righteousness is his sheer mercy and grace and love for you. Luther says, I've been wrong and the door swung open to heaven itself. He ends with this line. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul that we've been studying became to me a gate to heaven. End quote. Hallelujah. What do you say? Huh? Uh, talking about discovering a life of spiritual magnificence. There it is. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, all wrapped up in the righteousness of God. When was the last time you ever studied God's righteousness? Take the study guide home. Mine your Bible. Mark it. Find that magnificence for your own life. Oh, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew then for the Gentile, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I have to insert this because this is a university audience. That's the caveat. I have to insert this. Translators and scholars are scratching their heads over two lines in verse 17. They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is it the righteousness of God? That would be subjective. Or is it the righteousness from God? That would be objective. You used to wonder that, didn't you? And secondly, in the same line, it, does one who is righteous live by faith? Or does one who is righteous by faith live? You're saying, ah, oh, come on, Dwight, that's just inconsequential. Are you kidding? There are entire library walls devoted to scholarly books struggling to know how best to translate those two lines in Romans 1.17. But I happen to agree with two commentators, one named Thomas Schreiner and the other named John Stott, who both conclude that both of those renditions for both of those phrases, in fact, are perfect. And that's what we need. So much so that John Stott says, it's got the righteousness of God, it's all of the above. Would you write this in, please? He says, I'll tell you what it is. There's a, it is a divine attribute. Write in the word attribute. It's who God is. It's, 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 it's part of Him. It is a divine attribute. But it's more. It is also a divine activity. God saves. It's His activity. It's a divine attribute. It's a divine activity. But it's even more. It's a divine achievement. It's what God does inside of you when you come to Him by faith. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that it is all God from beginning to end. That's the point. And the secondary, secondary point is this. Therefore, I am not ashamed. Nor do you have to be ashamed any longer. No more shame because, would you write this in, the truth of the gospel is that the, the, the performance that matters is Jesus' performance, not yours. The truth of the gospel is that the righteousness that counts is God's righteousness, not yours. And I wish you could scribble fast. I wish you could scribble one sentence that will be on the screen, screen in front of you. Scribble it fast. 
The truth of the gospel is we are not loved by God because of what we do. We are loved by God because of who we are. We are earth children saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 5 reads through Jesus and for his namesake, we received grace. No shame based, no performance driven System with Paul. Nope. The righteous will live by faith. Hallelujah. Faith from beginning to end. Well, in, the, in closing, let me share with you one more incident from Luther's life. Roland Bainton recounts when young Martin Luther was visiting the holy city of Rome as a novice monk early in his spiritual pilgrimage. All right. He was distraught, Martin was, over the callous disregard for Holy Mother Church that he noted among the clergy. He just could not believe it. And so one day, hoping to gain a measure of peace for himself and of penance for his deceased Grandpa Heine, Martin Luther was climbing a staircase in Rome, purported to be the very stairs Jesus descended from Pilate's judgment hall in Jerusalem. As he was climbing the stairway on his hands and knees, he was repeating the Pater Noster, the Our Father, for each step. And he kissed each stair for good measure. And then at the top of the stairs, he stood aright. In fact, let me quote Bainton. Luther raised himself up and exclaimed, not as the legend would have it, the just shall live by faith. He was not yet that far advanced. What he said was, Who knows whether it is so? After all of that on on my knees, who knows whether it's so? Who knows whether a shame-based system really tells the truth about God? And I know, I know that if Paul could have been there, Paul would have cried, Hey, 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 I know, I know, for I'm not ashamed I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteous, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. No shame based. No performance-driven climbing on our knees for you and me. The just shall live by faith means just that. Trusting in the God of righteousness and the righteousness of God, we can walk through the rest of life with grace and peace and no shame at all. Amen and amen. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.